Well, good morning. How are you guys? Doing good? Well, happy Memorial Day weekend. I feel like we all deserve a pat on the back for officially making it through this endless winter that we've had. Um, we, I'm so excited for where God has been taking us in this series over the last several weeks and where we're going to be going today. Um, and as we get started, I want to take you guys back to the beginning of this endless winter, back in November. My wife and I had the opportunity to travel to New York City. And in New York City, we got to see a lot of different touristy cool things like Times Square and uh, the Statue of Liberty and all of the different things that you do when you're out there. Uh, but one of my favorite things that we got to do was we got to go see uh, the art museum in New York City, the Met. And I could stand up here and pretend like I'm some art aficionado with like a hipster coffee in my hand and stuff. But I'll be honest, going into this museum, I didn't know anything about art. I knew pretty much one or two artists that were in this museum. And one of the artists that I was familiar with in the museum is Vincent van Gogh. Many of you guys have probably heard of him or are familiar with him. Um, he is one of the most famous artists in the entire world. Um, I, and I learned about him in high school art class. All I knew about him was that he was, like I said, really famous. Um, and also that he had cut off his own ear at some point in his life, which is weird and, and gross. But um, I, I got to see these paintings that Vincent van Gogh had done up close. I got to see the vibrant colors that he was known for. I could have reached out and touched the brush strokes, except I would have been pummeled by six security guards, but I was that close to be able to see these Vincent van Gogh paintings. And as I left the mat, I began to research a little bit more about his life and, and what he was known for. And his paintings are some of the most famous paintings in the entire world. They've sold, he actually just sold one recently for over $80 million dollars. Some of the most expensive paintings in the world. He regularly sells paintings for $60 million and other ones for tens of millions of dollars. He's widely regarded as one of the best painters in the entire world. But here's the thing that you might not know about Vincent van Gogh. Vincent van Gogh actually only sold one painting while he was alive for less than the modern equivalent of about $1,000. He never made any money doing painting. In fact, he lost money because he poured so much of it and so much of himself into his craft. And so for Vincent van Gogh, over the course of painting 900 paintings, 1,100 drawings, he didn't make any money, but he was ridiculously committed to mastering his craft. In fact, uh, we know from letters that he wrote his brother during the time that he was painting that there was a gap for him. There was a gap between where he, wanted to, or where he was a really good painter, somebody who mastered his craft, and where he wanted to be, somebody who could make a career and a living off of painting. And he lived in this gap. He lived in the struggle for so many years of his life. And I don't know about you, but, but my life is often full of gap seasons as well, where where I am today is not necessarily where I want to be. Maybe for you it's, it's a job situation or a career or the job you're in right now, is, is not where you want to be. You want a promotion, or you want a different position, or a different job altogether, and you're living in this gap season between where you are today and where you want to be. Maybe for you, it's a family situation. Maybe you have a distant kid, or you're, you're in a process of infertility right now, and, and where you are today is not where you want to be. And the question that I want to ask us today, the question that I want us to process through today, 
is what do we do in the midst of those gap seasons? And more importantly, who are we? What type of people are we in the midst of those gap seasons? So like I said, over the last several weeks, we've been in a series all about the life of King David. And King David is one of the most famous, one of the most prolific uh, characters in the entire Bible. And he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. And David was anointed as a shepherd boy, the youngest in his family, the youngest son of Jesse, the most unlikely to be king. He's anointed as a young teenager to become the next king of Israel. And after that, we see David have some incredible highs in his life. He has military victories. He defeated Goliath. He defeats Philistine armies. He gains popularity with the people that are around him. But one problem is that the king, Saul, the existing king, cannot stand David. We talked about this last week. This jealousy, this bitterness, this envy wells up in Saul's heart, and he wants David dead. And so over the course of the next little bit, we see Saul make uh, death attempt after death attempt on David's life between throwing spears at him, between putting David in scenarios, military scenarios, where they were pretty hopeless and he would most likely die. But again and again and again, God spares David's life. But the text we're going to look at today, David is actually in a gap season. He's in a season between where he is today and where God has promised he will be. You see, David in this text today is anointed as a king, yet David is running as a refugee. He's running for his life in the desert. He's running from Saul. And so we're going to look at who is David in the midst of this gap season in his life. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will also be on the screen, so you can look up there as well. So David, running from Saul, we're jumping in here in 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Let's pause there. So David is running relentlessly from Saul. He's trying to escape. He's trying to uh, be able to live and, and have his life. And David has been nothing but consistent and faithful to Saul. Yet Saul wants him dead. And so as chance would have it, David and his 600 men are hiding in the back of this cave. And Saul comes in to relieve himself. Now, if you're wondering what the text means when it says he came in to relieve himself, the Hebrew words literally say he came in to cover his feet, which means use the cave's facilities. He's a human man with human man needs. He's uh, going number two. He's taking a short bathroom break in the cave. You heard it at front line. Um, But he's, he's relieving himself. And as chance would have it, David is in the exact same cave that Saul is in. And so David, in this moment, is presented with an opportunity. What is he going to do? In verse 4, David's men speaks to him, and they say, This, David, is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. By the way, God never said that to David. God anointed David as king, but he never said, you can harm Saul, or you can lay a hand on Saul, or you can do what you want to Saul. All David knew in this moment is that he was anointed the next king of Israel. So David creeps up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken 
for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went on his way. I want you to put yourselves in David's shoes for a minute here. You've been in the desert for a season of time. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You're probably a little annoyed and perturbed that a man that you've done nothing wrong to is trying to kill you. And you have a moment here to take your own fate, your own destiny into your hands and kill Saul. Because David knew that the, the moment he killed Saul, he would become the next king. And so he's faced here with an opportunity, a choice, to take his own fate into his own hands. And what does he do? He doesn't do it. He doesn't take the opportunity to kill Saul. In fact, he lets Saul live. Now think what letting Saul live might have meant for David. Not only would it prolong him becoming king, but it also could have meant that he was sealing his own fate as well because the man who's trying to kill him is still alive and chasing after him. And so what we see here in David's life is this incredible display of integrity. David shows incredible integrity in this moment. And the thing that I want to talk to you guys about today is the fact that it's in these gap seasons, in seasons like David is in in his life right now, where our integrity, where who we are as people, is most easily compromised. If you're wondering what I mean by that, what I mean is that often we try to close that gap by any means necessary. If you've seen all the scandals that we have in our world over the years, we see this all over the place. We see this in politics and government. We see this in business and economics. We see this in sports. We see this even in churches sometimes, where people are willing to close the gap between where they are and where they want to be by any means necessary. Lance Armstrong, for example, the best cyclist in the world, seven Tour de France titles, has all of them stripped away because he was doping and he cheated. He wanted to close the gap between where he was and where he wanted to be. Bernie Madoff ran the largest Ponzi scheme in history, scammed thousands of people out of tons and tons and tons of money because he had a desire to close the gap between where he was and where he wanted to be. This, this is the world we live in. It's a world that, that says, close the gap in your life by any means necessary, whatever, whatever it takes. But we see David in this moment make a different choice. We see him make the choice of integrity. And so that leaves us to ask, what is integrity? Like, what does it look like to be a person of integrity? What does it look like to live out integrity in our lives? I would define integrity this way. I would say integrity is when our behavior is rooted in our convictions, not in our circumstances. Integrity is when our behavior is rooted in our convictions, not in our circumstances. If you're wondering what I mean when I say that, let me unpack this a little bit. Now, I'm a pastor to students, and every day I get asked some profound moral questions by students. I get asked about things like 
injustice and poverty and racism in our world. I get asked um, about things um, like sexuality and doubt and all of these different really profound moral questions. Uh, But I think one of the most profound moral questions that I've ever seen students posting about and asking about online is this one right here. You want to put that slide up, Terry? Would you kick this puppy for $1 million? Deep, right? But think about it. In this moment, in this decision, you're faced with a moral integrity decision. You see, on one hand, I would hope that all of us would have the conviction that kicking a puppy is morally wrong. That's a conviction. But on the other hand, man, I don't know about you, but I could really use a million dollars. That would, I mean, that's a circumstance, right? And so in this moment, I'm torn between what is going to have the stronger hold on my actions, my conviction or my circumstances. Now, just so we're all on the same page, the right thing to do in this situation, I'm not advocating animal cruelty, the right thing to do is to not kick the puppy very hard. Just, just a little, like, just a little, like, love tap. He'll think you're playing with him. You can have the best of both worlds. But we're, but we're faced with decisions like this all the time in our lives where we have to choose between our convictions, what we know and what we believe is right, and our circumstances. In fact, recently there was a poll done that almost 50% of Americans believe that our morality, that our integrity is directly related to our circumstances, that our morality is flexible depending on our circumstances. And I would argue that a much higher percentage than 50% actually live that way, as if our morality is relative to our circumstances. It's almost uh, the end justifies the means in any way possible. But this isn't the way David lives. This isn't the way that you and I are called to live either. Because when we are people that live out of our convictions, our behavior is grounded. It is rooted. As the church, when we live out of our convictions, our behavior is compassionate. It's self-sacrificing. It's ethical. It's a very picture of who David is in this situation. You see, shortly after David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, he confronts Saul. And he says, Saul, I had an opportunity to kill you, and I didn't do it. Saul, you have to see that I am faithful to my God, and I am faithful to you. In verse 10 of the the passage here, these words are not on the screen, but David says it this way. He says, This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. This is the picture of David. He has an opportunity to close this gap, and he doesn't take it. His behavior in this season is rooted. It is grounded. It is consistent. Now, on the other hand, we have a picture of Saul. Saul is a man who lives out of his circumstances, Saul's behavior throughout this entire season is very protectionist. It's very self-preserving. It's very irrational. It's emotionally driven. It's very unethical, and it seeks to raise himself up above everybody else. In fact, even after David says this to Saul, even after he says, I'm not going to harm you, Saul's response doesn't really change. It's like, well, David, if you're not going to harm me, then then don't kill my offspring and, and don't tarnish my family's name once I'm gone. By the way, spoiler alert, I'm going to continue to try to kill you after this. Saul's heart doesn't change. 
Saul's heart is very much a person that operates out of his circumstances, while David is a person that operates out of his convictions. Now, what, is, what does this mean for you and I today? Because it's easy to look at people in our society who have made mistakes. It's easy to look at David and Saul. But the beauty of David's story is that it's a mirror for us to look into with our own lives as well. And the implications of living out of your convictions in your own life means that how you make your money is actually far more important than how much money you make. If I am willing to make my money in my business by any means necessary, whether it hurts people, whether it exploits people, well, then I'm not living out of my convictions. I'm living out of my circumstances. This has implications for how we parent. Because people who live out of their convictions recognize that my response to my kids' mistakes is often more important than the mistakes my kids make in the first place. Am I going to respond out of the the anger and the frustration and the rage that I feel towards my child in this circumstance? Or am I going to recognize that even though I may be frustrated, even though I may be mad, my conviction is that it's my calling to represent Jesus to my kids? Who, Who and what is going to drive our behavior in these circumstances, in these situations that we find ourselves in? has implications for our marriage as well. You see how I fight with my spouse. The words I use, the posture I use when I fight in conflict with my spouse is far more important than winning that argument. This has implications for how we treat our enemies and for how we treat people who have wronged us. Am I going to be the type of person that continues to, to, to circle around and create this cycle of ugliness in my life and, and hurt that person back and sh- seek revenge? Or am I going to be the type of person that says, no, my convictions say that I am going to love my enemies. I am going to love people that hurt me. See, my friends, living out integrity has so many implications for our lives. So this brings up the question, how do we do it? How did David do it in the cave? How do we actually go about living out of our convictions, not out of our circumstances? Well, it has everything to do with where we put our hope. You see, it has everything to do with where our hope and our faith lies. If you want to go to the next slide there, Terry, we won't put our hope simply in what God does. We'll put our hope in who he is. You see, putting our hope in what God does, that's very circumstantial. Putting our hope in who he is, that's a conviction. David, in this moment, doesn't put his hope in the promises God makes to him, although he believes those promises. He puts his hope in the God who made the promises. And the difference here is that had David put his hope only in the promises God had made to him, he would have killed Saul right then and there. He would have done anything necessary to close that gap and to fulfill those promises himself. But David's hope wasn't in the promise that he would be king. David's hope was in the God who made the promises. There's a, there's a subtle hint happening here in the scripture as to where David is during the season of his life. At the beginning of chapter 24, it says David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And David, we know, is, is traveling throughout this area, and it's very dry. It's very, um, thirst would be this, this huge thing that he would be experiencing, hunger. It's a very desolate 
very barren landscape. And David, we know from, from Psalms that he's written, is tired and he's worn out. He's very broken by his circumstances in a lot of ways. But in the midst of this desert, in the midst of this dry and barren and dusty landscape, there lies a place, an oasis. If you want to go to that waterfall picture, Terry, called En Gedi. And there's no doubt that David would have come here, this refreshing spring of water, and found nourishment and sustaining. Have you ever been that thirsty? Where, like, you have, like, cotton mouth, where you can literally hear somebody who is thirsty while they speak. And then that, that rush of water, the first drink that you take, is just the most refreshing, overwhelming, amazing thing to be able to experience. For David, his physical thirst was quenched at a place like in Getty. But his spiritual thirst was quenched by the presence of God in his life every single step of the way. Through every high and through every low of the circumstances that David experienced, God was David's spiritual and Getty. We know this from Psalm 63, a psalm that David wrote while he was in this wilderness season, while he was wandering and waiting on God, while he was waiting for God to fulfill his promises, we know that David held on to the hope that God had given him. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 5, says this, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land... Where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life. I'm going to read that line again. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Do you hear the desperation in David's words for God? Do you hear the conviction that he is living out of? That God, I may not know how you'll fulfill your promises. I may not know how you'll fulfill and close this gap in my life. But I trust you. I believe that you will do what you say you will do. I believe that you will sustain me in this season. And God, I believe that you are near. David believed that God was his source of living water. And there's another one who came after David named Jesus, who also offers us living water today. You see, in John 4, Jesus is sitting with a woman at a well, a woman who also is very broken by her circumstances. She's had five husbands, and the, the man she's with right now is not her husband. And Jesus looks at her with compassion. And he says, this well that we're sitting at, you'll drink this water and you'll be thirsty again. This well water is dead water. It is a dead end. But then Jesus says this in John 13, John 4, 13 and 14. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to entire, eternal life. You see, Jesus offers us living water, water that can sustain us in the highs and the lows of our circumstances, water that can sustain us 
in the difficult seasons that we find ourselves in, in the difficult gap seasons where we are tempted to live out our, our circumstances, Jesus offers us water that we can live out of our convictions. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said it this way. He said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. You will never know the fullness of Christ, which is a conviction, a conviction to live out of, until you know that everything else compared to Christ is ultimately emptiness. You see, I don't know about you, but, but putting my hope in my circumstances, well, that's a dead end because my circumstances will let me down every single time. My circumstances will always fail me. There are highs and there are lows. There are good seasons and there are bad seasons. And they're not something to put our hope in. But Jesus, Jesus comes and he says, I have living water. I have a hope that transcends your circumstances. I have a hope that transcends the painful season that you are in in your life. I have a friend named Paul. And Paul is one of my, my best friends. He and I went to high school together. Um, we, in 10th grade, actually took driver's ed together. And as 10th graders, you're, you're usually not a very good driver, right? Like, like, you know how they give those driver's ed instructors the, the emergency brake in the passenger seat? Let's just say our driver's ed instructor used that little brake a lot. We got honked at all the time. Um, but we eventually finished driver's ed, and as most 10th graders are, we were really ready for the independence of our licenses. We were really ready to be able to branch out and drive on our own. And so we're putting our hours in with our permits, and um, a few months into this season, Paul has something happened to him. He experiences a grand mal seizure that was kind of a residual effect from an injury he had had as a kid. But if you know anything about seizures, you know that when you have a seizure in the state of Michigan, you can't drive for six months after that. You have to be six months seizure-free before you can drive again. And so Paul instantly loses his right and his ability to be able to drive. And the problem, though, is that it wasn't just one seizure. This first seizure sparked a series of seizures over the next year in Paul's life, where epilepsy became a very real struggle in his life. And his, his parents, I remember during the season, would take him to doctor after doctor, different treatment after different treatment, to try to find a solution to get rid of these seizures for him. And I watched Paul struggle with not being able to have independence. I mean, this lasted even into college. He had to put college on hold because of the situation, the circumstance in his life. Eventually, his parents found a brain surgery that he could have, and, and he had it. And for the most part, it made him seizure-free, although he's still trying to uh, figure out the right balance of meds so that he can be fully seizure-free for, for the rest of his life. But I'd love to stand up here and tell you that the moment Paul's family put their trust in Jesus fully, that his seizures and his circumstance changed. But unfortunately, that's not, that's not always how life works, is it? It's not always how life works. Our painful circumstances don't always just get removed from us. Sometimes we still have to walk through them. And in Paul's case, the most incredible thing that I saw happen was not that his circumstance changed, although God did work miracles in that area. The most incredible thing that happened in Paul's story was that I watched him begin to live out of his convictions, to live out of a fullness of Christ in his life, and I watched him become more Christ-like in the process. God didn't take Paul's circumstance from him. 
but he used his circumstance to form him into the likeness of his son. And this, this is how we begin to make the shift from giving our circumstances power in our lives to being people of integrity that live out of our convictions in our lives. And so as we, as we close today and as we enter into a time and space of worship, I want to ask you a simple question. Are you the type of person that is living out of your convictions or are you living out of your circumstances? I'll go first and I'll say it is often easy in my life to live out of my circumstances. It is often so much easier to live out of the painful circumstances, to live out of the uncertain circumstances and to let that drive who I am. Let's be people that are different than that. Let's be the type of church where our convictions are so firmly rooted in the person of Jesus that it impacts every circumstance in our lives. Maybe you're here this morning and you have business practices that you know need to change. You have business practices that are affecting your family, are affecting the people that work with you and for you. And you need to make a shift from doing business out of your circumstances to doing business out of your convictions. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been really hurt by someone. And everything in you wants to seek revenge on that person, wants to make that wrong situation right by whatever means necessary. Be a person of conviction that says, you know what? You have hurt me, but I'm not going to continue that cycle of hurt in my life. I'm going to rise above that. See, in the midst of our uncertain and our painful circumstances, God is near. He is present. And he is so faithful. In the midst of our life's uncertainties, God is the same. David knew this. God is the same yesterday and today forever. Maybe you're in a season right now in your family where you are struggling with infertility and you need to be encouraged this morning and hear that even in the midst of your pain, God is with you. God is with you every painful step of the way and he loves you so much more than you could imagine. Again, I don't know what your circumstance looks like this morning. I don't know what gap season you find yourself in as you walked into this place this morning, but my prayer for you and my challenge for you is to be a person that lives out of the convictions of who God is in your life, that puts your hope in who he is, not just what he does for you. We're going to worship. Let's be part of, let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of people that live so firmly out of our convictions that the world takes notice.